Hello and welcome back to a very special one-off episode of the Pint of Science podcast, bridging the admittedly quite lengthy gap between our first and second seasons. With me today to present is not the familiar voice of Jim, but instead it's our producer Sam, who is now joining me in the capacity as presenter. Hello there, Sam. Hello, hello. Yes, I've gone from knob twiddler to <laughs> Mike aficionado. Sure, describe yourself as a knob twiddler live on air, Sam. For those of you that are new to the podcast, our premise is pretty simple. We meet scientists, researchers, and anyone whose work relates to the research world in the pub for a pint or two. We chat to them about their work, what inspires and motivates them, and usually their lives outside of research too. And we often find some intriguing associations between these things, although we're yet to confirm a causal relationship with statistics. And we were absolutely thrilled and undeniably more than a little starstruck when today's guest let us know that they could find an hour to join us back in the Salutation pub in Manchester and Old pint of science podcast favorite if you've an interest in science and access to the internet there is a pretty high probability that you've heard of randall munro author and creator of the hilarious and incredibly informative webcomic xkcd and probability is in fact one of randall's favorite branches of maths i think he calls it math what should we go for today we're in britain We'll it's math. We'll go for maths, <laughs> yes. So beginning in 2005, as some notebook doodles scanned and uploaded to a website, a website that remains comfortingly old-fashioned to this day, XKCD quickly gained an impressive following, amassing up to 70 million hits a month by October 2007, which I think is almost as many as this podcast gets. Give or take. Yeah, yeah. So today, XKCD, with its scientific, sarcastic, and often very insightful look at the world, can count among its many, many fans the fantasy author Neil Gaiman, Microsoft founder Bill Gates, actor and board game advocate Will Wheaton, along with pretty much every proud geek on the face of the planet. Us included. More recently, not content with just creating a world-dominating comic, Randall has written several best-selling books. 2014's What If offered real scientific answers to, frankly, absurd hypothetical questions, and this was followed in 2015 by Thing Explainer, my personal favourite, in which Randall explained some of the most complex scientific concepts using only the 1,000 most common words in the English language. Fast forward to 2019, that's right about now, and as of last month, Randall's newest book, How To, is available, flipping the concept behind what if on its head to offer absurd scientific advice for very common real-world problems. We'll be back for a debrief in an hour or so, but for now, enjoy a pint of science with Randall Monroe. I guess to open with, I'm surprised to discover that you're not a stick person. This must be a common assumption. It's, it's quite surprising to meet you in the flesh. How often do you get recognized out and about? Now and then, certainly less often than someone who does any kind of, you know, acting or anything like that, which is kind of nice. I think it's sort of similar to other, you know, to writers. Uh, yeah. It just depends how much you're you put your face on things. That's actually really true. Authors, I always find this. I'm always surprised the first time you see like Margaret Atwood or someone yes. like that. It's never exactly what you expect. And the, vo the voice as well is always different from what you've got in your head. Well, I think your comics have a very distinctive voice that I read them in, which isn't mm -hmm. your voice. That's not to, say, not to say now I've heard your voice. It won't still work. But interesting, <laughs> interestingly, I always read your voice in your comics in the voice of, um, was it Peter Jones, the yes. presenter from the original Hitchhiker's Guide radio series? Oh. You know, the yeah. voice of the book. I don't, I've never heard the, I've never listened to the radio series. Okay. I've, I've read the books and I've, and I saw the more recent adaptation. Uh -huh. but I never heard the uh, famous original radio series. I was wondering if you were maybe influenced by some of that kind of British school of comedy in, in writing XKCD. What were the kind of biggest 
inspirations for you when you were developing your comedic style? I grew up reading newspaper comics, and so it was like whatever ran in the local newspapers for me, you know, Calvin and Hobbes, but, you know, and The Far Side was a big one. Yes. Gary but then even, you know, I read, I read every Garfield strip ever published. You know, I read all, all kinds of um, just, I was, not, I was not too picky. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's always funny coming to the UK because so much of the media we consume as kids in the US especially comes from the UK. And so driving around here, looking at the countryside, it, it all looks like, oh, it's like the houses from picture books, you know. <laughs> oh, I always thought that was an artistic style, but no, it's just how towns look here. Literally how it looks. Yeah. <laughs> There's less grey in the kids' books, I find. Yeah. yeah. They don't really capture the sky of Britain in October. I was going to say, you're really seeing Britain today. We're currently sat in classic Manchester weather. Uh, it's pretty bleak outside. With your comedy voice then, and, and just the style of XKCD, the way that developed over the years, have you have you found that sort of changed since you began in... So you started in 2005, didn't you? Yep. So over the last sort of 14 years, would <laughs> you say there's been a kind of transformation in the way you approach writing your comics? Sure, sure. As I mean, as I've grown up, the things that I'm thinking about have changed and the things that I focus on have changed, you know. One thing that's been really interesting that when I started out, I didn't really realize that uh, I could do was I've done more kind of, I guess, infographics, you know, when I realized that this was an outlet, not just for doing comics, but I could make, you know, be researching something and make a really big, cool chart of it. Yes. Um, that was something, you know, I kind of discovered that somewhat early on, but as I went, I re that's where I felt like I got to explore, you know, new ideas. And it's like my own notes as I'm learning about something. Mm. I'll try to figure out a way to put them all together that makes sense. And that's been one of the most fun things to, to learn more about as I've, as I've done comics. And some of those have been picked up by quite big media outlets right like the uh the fukushima radiation chart that you did that oh, ran yeah. in a whole bunch of really quite high profile papers and and was kind of presented as an expert's insight really how do you well, feel when things get picked up like that you know that one is sort of a special case because i didn't actually post that as a comic i didn't post that anywhere uh you know i posted it on my website but just in a folder, you know, where people could access the image. I didn't have any kind of like, this is... And if you read the, the, along the bottom in the fine print, it does say who it's by, but it's me and also uh, Ellen McManus, who's a reactor operator. Mm -hmm. And so this was something, you know, I didn't want to put it on my website. I didn't want to be trying to get traffic with it or trying to sell merchandise or sell posters, just because it felt a little, that felt like it would be like exploiting people's concern about the health effects of radiation. Sure. I really was just trying to help, you know, educate people. And it was partly because Ellen, who worked at a nuclear reactor, came to me, uh, she was a friend of mine, and said that she's trying to figure out a good way to explain to people different levels of radiation. So we sat down together and she, you know, helped me um, get the numbers that are useful comparisons, figure out what uh, made sense to say, and, and, you know, provided that expertise. And then I posted it online, but I, I tried, it's sort of neither of us were really trying to claim credit, but I put, you know, both our names at the bottom. But that, but when it's something like that, where it's affecting public health on a hot, you know, an issue like that, I really do try to make sure I've been run it by experts and people who can be more aware of the context and be more responsible about it. Because at the end of the day, I guess you are, you're a cartoonist, mm -hmm. but you've worked in one specific branch of science. You worked on robots, right? That was your original at Langley. You were a yeah. roboticist. Um, and I also worked, I mean, I sort of moved around because I, I worked on robots there as that was the sort of the one thing that I was 
you know, hired to do as an employee. But that was really only for, you know, it was for the better part of a year. Before that, I worked a summer internship on virtual reality oh, wow. uh, projects. And that was all while I was finishing up my physics degree. So I sort of bounced around a lot, which I think is part of why I didn't end up going on to grad school was that I never really focused in on a particular thing. I just enjoyed bouncing around uh, different parts of the fields. Okay. Do you still watch with interest what's happening in robotics and virtual reality? Because they're growing so fast. Oh, yeah. Virtual reality. I have a couple of friends who do who, who are more into video games who who have played with a lot of the new devices that are out there. I've, I've looked at them a little bit, but haven't gotten deep into them. I feel like everybody follows to some extent the robotics progress, both the kind of vaguely terrifying Boston Dynamics videos <laughs> of robot dogs doing backflips and opening doors, but then uh, also the robots that we send to other planets and do space exploration with. And those are all always uh, really fun to watch and we get very invested in their success or their uh, hardships and trials and tribulations. That's <laughs> press, a, press F for spirit and opportunity. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice leading actually to the next question I was going to ask you, which was about the inspiration behind your latest book, How To. In the opening kind of introduction, you mentioned that the Mars Curiosity rover is, was kind of part of the story as to what inspired you to write this book. I mean, you've described How To as uh, bad ideas for solving everyday problems. So the first obvious question is, what inspires a guy to write a book full of bad ideas to solve everyday problems? Well, I really, I didn't start out trying to write a book of bad ideas. <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to come up with ideas and then go over them and kind of try to analyze how would they work out in practice. Now, it did turn out most of them were bad. And occasionally when I stumbled on one that was kind of good, I would just keep going and adding to it until it turned into a bad one. But I think... What's really fun about doing science and about sort of some of the tools that science gives us is that they give us a way to evaluate whether an idea is good or bad beyond our own kind of first impression of it. Mm. And that sometimes that can be surprising like in both directions. So like the way they landed Curiosity on Mars using this elaborate sky crane that hovered while lowering the rover on a tether that's, you know, swinging back and forth. Like that seemed like a bad idea, but it turned out the more they thought about it, they couldn't find any problems with it. it. turned out to be better than any of the other ideas they could come up with. And a lot of a lot of good ideas sound ridiculous when you first hear them. Like if you get a cut on your arm and someone's like, here, rub mold on that, you know, <laughs> you, that definitely sounds like a bad idea. But then by the same token, some things that sound like bad ideas really are bad ideas. Like there are lots of things you could rub on a cut that would not help make it better. And then there are also things that sound like really good ideas that that turn out to be bad. And even though they sounded good at first, you have to kind of Either maybe, maybe you have to try them, but also maybe sometimes you can kind of model them and work out the consequences ahead of time and figure out, oh, this is going to have some unexpected uh, uh, negative effects down the line. Like when we added lead to gasoline to reduce wear and tear on the engines, and then that turned out to be poisoning the atmosphere with lead. I was going to say, um, some of the consequences don't emerge until like yeah, several decades yeah, down the line. Yeah, but like right? we could have figured that out, but we didn't. You know, It was like if, if we had just been, been a little bit quicker about that. I find it really interesting going over old articles from sort of the mid to late 1800s of people trying to figure out what caused malaria. And in in that little window where we had a lot of scientific methods that we were applying, but we didn't have the microscopes necessary to confirm to see the malaria parasites and to figure out, yes, it's this thing that's carried by mosquitoes. And there are all these articles with like really smart people with a lot of information and evidence to work with circling around the right answer, but never quite getting to it. Right, okay. Um, You know, and they're like, we know it has something to do with areas with standing water, 
and maybe kind of swampy areas. Maybe it's something about decaying material, you know? And they knew that there were often mosquitoes in those areas, but there were lots of areas, especially the less humid areas, where there were lots of mosquitoes, but no malaria. Yeah. So they thought it couldn't just be the mosquitoes. It must be something else. You know, so they would occasionally think, figure out the mosquitoes and then not be able to confirm it and then you know, drift away from it. And reading that kind of stuff makes me wonder, like, what, what things like that are we circling around right now and not quite able to figure out because we just haven't thought about it hard enough, you know? I feel like medicine is full of those kinds of things. If you study sort of like ancient Egypt or whatever, they had approaches to certain ailments that were working really effectively, but when you kind of read their reasoning behind it, it was like because they thought they were satisfying a particular god or whatever, but actually they just realized that like honey has antiseptic properties, but you know, it takes two two thousand years for someone to be like, oh I think it was this actually. Alcohol as well. Oh yeah, the way everyone was drinking alcohol because it stops you getting poisoned by the water. Yes. No one really realized that water was poisonous (laughs) poisonous yeah. <laughs> just that beer isn't yeah that was back when water was really fun um what's your process when you take one of these these problems then it feels almost like you're an alien that's landed on the planet in your in the way you look at these problems it's like you've tried to remove yourself entirely from the sort of preconception of how you might do something as simple as jump really high that's right the mm-hmm. first the first chapter in the new book is how to jump And the way you seem to have worked through that is you start with the most obvious, you know, try jumping really high. (laughs) And then you sort of take it to each logical step. How do you, you know, start with a problem and how do you work through writing that chapter? Sometimes I'll just start brainstorming, you know, different ways I could do something. It's sort of the same way I would when I'm trying to solve a problem in real life. Uh, You know, when you have to solve a problem that you don't know an obvious way to do it, you just come up with ideas, think, would that work? No, yes, you know, would that work? Well, I'm not sure. Let's try to figure it out. And, and I just try to uh, tackle the ideas with a little bit less restraint on like, well, this seems ridiculous, but let's hear it out. You know? uh-huh. Occasionally when I'm researching, so when I'm trying to figure out whether an idea will work or not, I will you know, look around. Sometimes I have to look for research. Like, this involves setting this thing on fire. Does that thing burn? I don't know. I'm going to go research it. You know, I've got to learn whether, whether this particular thing is flammable. But Often in the process of doing that, I'll find that like, oh, that's not a very satisfying answer. That idea wouldn't work or whatever. But I'll find some weird resource that I'll say, I, okay, this doesn't help me with this problem, but it's a really interesting study. So I'm going to just kind of put this aside. And, and then maybe later on, I'll find a problem where I say, oh, you know what I can use here is this and pull out that you know, bizarre study or resource or, um, or book. One thing that I discovered while researching this was I stumbled on this book titled Cheese Rheology and Texture, which is like, it's either, I think, 400 pages and $250 or the other way around. Uh-huh. Um, and it's this source book, this industrial source book on like the properties of every type of cheese, the physical uh, and structural properties. And I use this as like a, a, you know, a brief reference in one of my chapters when I suggested you could I was just trying to throw out unusual materials you could use to build a wall around something. Right. And, and I picked cheese, and I liked that if you go and look in the citations, you'll find this, like, it's not like, a, you know, I didn't just Google, like, huh, how strong is cheese? You know, <laughs> I have, I have the, uh, the authoritative book. But part of the fun there was just, I love finding that kind of thing and thinking, like, I wonder how many copies of this book there are in the world. You know, like there are probably probably factories and, you know, companies that do cheese, you know, food manufacturing, like food industry. 
this might be like the standard textbook that they all have for cheese related <laughs> production, you know, and, and, and sometimes I'll just sit there like kind of speculating about like, is this book still treasured by these people or is it, you know, has it all moved to digital things or, you know, like I can go on their publisher's website and you can, you can just order a single copy, you know, and, and it costs $250 or something. And I wonder how many people do that? Does anyone just show up and be like, this looks interesting. I'm going to buy it. You know? <laughs> I and think people I guess, like probably yourself. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> and, I, and what I did, I rented a copy uh, for a uh, uh, smaller than 250 or $400, whatever it was, right. uh, price from the, uh, I think it was from the internet archive library, which oh, right, has okay. sort of short-term rentals, which is really mm. nice. Oh, that's cool. It's nice to have a physical thing, isn't it? Like yeah. an actual yeah. copy of a book. Yeah. Well, and I rented, they have digital copies for rent. Oh, so right, it's okay. like, in, I think in partnership with some library systems. Sure. Sure. So you can pay for a membership or something, and then you can rent books from there for a limited time. I mean, that makes good economic sense because you're not going to be daily looking up the sheer strength of brie or the tensile strength. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of I Gaud guess. Or I, I, I think it was. I think it was. You know, it was something like fifteen dollars to rent it, and I. It, but it was. That's. I don't have a lot of research costs, so I feel like when I find something like that, I'm like, I can't not get this. I don't want to steal a copy from somewhere because, like. The people who made this book, all I can think is like, what were they like? Who, you know, <laughs> I don't want to deny them whatever due credit they deserve no, for exactly. this accomplishment. It's, it's a niche market they're making yeah, that book for I, you. They probably deserve you too. I don't believe they're, they're living big off, <laughs> off the, the science of properties. properties of cheese. Yeah, so I'm out here. I'll, I'll, uh, then I feel good about coming out and, and like plugging their book. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. This is a classic. This should be on the bestseller. We'll get a link to it in the podcast now. notes, yeah. won't we, yeah. at the end? So I have to say, reading your works, it's like going down a wonderful click hole mm -hmm. and you feel like you're going on a journey with you. How much time do you spend in mad click holes that you I mean, get out of? I sort mean, of, sort of all of it. It's <laughs> like my problem is never like, it's not like I allocate a certain amount of time and I'm going to work on this and it'll take me this long or whatever. It's sort of like I go down rabbit holes until I run out of time and then have to back out and, and put it all together. And sometimes I'll get a very simple question and then I will find an easy solution, but then kind of keep going. Um, one of them was someone, someone asked on my website, uh, what would happen if you tried to funnel all the water from Niagara Falls through a drinking straw? And that's a really simple question to answer. Like it's sort of mathematically speaking. Uh, yes. You like find out what's the flow of water over Niagara Falls. And then you can just like divide that flow rate by the cross-sectional area of a drinking straw and you get a velocity that tells you how fast the water would have to flow to fit through that narrow an aperture. Um, and the velocity is like comparable to the speed of light. Oh, right. So, <laughs> so if you did manage to funnel it through there, it would be shooting a jet of, of don't, don't water at the speed of light it. and destroy the earth. <laughs> but then like, but you know, I've written about how that kind of expending that much energy in one place will, will devastate the earth. But it, no matter how you get to that, the result is uh, the same. And so that didn't interest me too much, you know, going through the play by play of how that would destroy the earth because it's the same way that any, like the moon crashing into the earth would destroy it or something. Whereas what I was wondering about is I read, there's a, there's a myth that they turn off Niagara Falls at night, which sounds silly, but like they really do divert quite a bit of water for uh, hydroelectric purposes and stuff, but they do not turn the falls off completely because there is a treaty between the US and Canada, which jointly own the falls. And the treaty says that they must leave a certain amount of water flowing over during the day and then somewhat less at night. And so they have to leave water flowing over the falls, which, you know, because they are a, a precious, splendid natural resource, heritage, etc., and a big tourist attraction. And so neither country is allowed to take too much water. Okay. And 
they they did turn them off once in the 60s for like uh, some kind of construction work. But I noticed when I was reading about this treaty that established this, that it mentioned that the U.S. and Canada will each appoint a representative who will jointly monitor the falls and the water flow over and confirm compliance with the treaty. Right. And that became a whole new rabbit hole because I started wondering, so wait, we have the United States and Canada each have a waterfall like police officer, you know, <laughs> an international crime fighting, like uh, organiz- it's like an international investigative and enforcement organization. Uh-huh. And in my head, I'm imagining this is like a Mulder and Scully from the X-Files kind of s- thing. And I, and I started wondering who are these people? Yeah. And that turned out to be a much harder question to answer than I thought. I thought you could just Google it and get their names, but this isn't, I guess, a hotly covered topic in the press. And so I started, like, I ended up spending, like, four or five hours in org charts for organizations like the Joint Committee for Lake Ontario Water Quality and Management, you know, the International Committee for Lake Ontario, which is con- composed of the Joint Committee and also representatives from the other lakes, the, committee on, the, the Joint Committee on the Great Lakes, the Joint International Management Group for the Great Lakes, which is a superset of that, you know, like... After like five hours, I found out who the waterfall police were, and I was very satisfied, and, but it was not where I was sort of expecting to end up. No. But I was happy because the American representative at the time that I did this a few years ago was uh, an officer, you know, a rear admiral or something with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And in Canada, it was a scientist from Environment Canada, their environmental agency. Um, and I was really happy to finally find out who these Mulder and Scully X-Files waterfall police were i can see how much like <laughs> that kind of like research process motivates you and it's really interesting reading the the book you i felt that happen sometimes in chapters where you'd start with a problem and you'd get halfway through it. i'm trying to think what's a good example of one uh, there was one chapter in particular as you can see i've put 400 <laughs> oh, stick, oh, stick notes on your book and now it's impossible to know where i should academically annotated possibly it was in how to throw a pool party or maybe it was how to build a lava moat around your house. There was one of them where I felt that you'd reached a point where you'd done the step-by-step and then you'd been like, actually, I think I'm bored of this thing. I think I want to jump completely (laughs) into some other... It was like you clearly discovered Mm -hmm. uh, a click hole at that point Mm -hmm. (laughs) and followed that one instead. Yeah, yeah. And And then occasionally I'll find one of those and I'll just have it waiting for me where it's like, I know at some point I can go into this because this is such a fun topic. You know? I like the one thing you do, which I found with XKCD as well, which I've been reading for about 12 years, the way you'll always leave a very brief hint about something else the reader can follow up. It's almost like chatting to you just then. You mentioned all these little things. I was like, that would be a cool thing to ask about. That would be a cool thing to ask about, but we only have an hour. <laughs> and I find the same with your book. I'm, I'm reading it, and you'll put a little uh, you know, footnote that says... I think in the chapter about a lava moat, for example, you have a little footnote that says about the lava crickets. Your, your moat might deter ants from getting in your house, but it might attract lava crickets. And that's all you say. And I'm just like, what's a lava cricket? That's <laughs> definitely something I need to go and look up well, now. And, and it's difficult to look up because there's um, surprisingly little known about lava crickets mm-hmm. because they live in lava tubes and for what might be obvious reasons, they're not the easiest animals to study. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so... You know, there's some information about them, but a lot of their habitats are are sort of particularly dangerous to access. The, they've gotten less attention than some of the arthropods living on more calm islands. But it's cool that you're kind of naturally managing to inspire that curiosity just mm. by giving a little, you know, hint of something that's worth following up. I like that. You alluded to it there a little bit. Do you ever find an answer first that you really want to talk about and then think, how do I phrase this as a question so I can <laughs> yeah. show oh, yeah, it Oh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> absolutely. 
sometimes I pick a task or a question or, or, you know, something because I know that I have a good answer. But I'd say the majority are the other way around. And with what if, it is really mostly, you know, it's questions that people have sent in. Once in a while, I'll talk to, I'll talk to a friend and we'll come up with a good question or something. And I'll be like, you should submit that. <laughs> just because I want to write an article answering that. So can you ask it? But for the most part, people have sent in just the, such a huge number of questions. It's like I always have something to, you know, whatever it is I want to talk about. I can, someone's asked something about it. Have you ever had one that you can't answer? Oh, sure, Is there sure, one that's sure. still playing at the back of your mind? You're like, I, I can't do this yet. Oh, yeah. No, there are a couple of those. There was one that someone asked about that I remember I, I set aside for several years before I finally answered that was about rowing a, a rowboat over a lake of liquid helium. Ooh. I'm and just trying to get my head around. <laughs> it's one of those super fluid things where it's quantum mechanical in its behavior in a way that's really hard to have an intuitive understanding of, at least for me. And I was like, I'm not sure I'm capable of answering this question. I eventually talked to an old physics professor to get help on that one. I shouldn't say this because you'll, you'll definitely make a podcast that immediately outstrips our own. But have you ever considered making a podcast where you, I can imagine your curiosity combined with interviewing experts from these various fields would be a, an interesting side branch for you yeah, to go down. It sounds fun. It's, uh, on the other hand, I feel like I have so many side branches it's hard to hard to keep up with them. I suppose yeah. that's true. Yeah. Well, I have I've, I've got like the whole back page of these notes is all about side branches. I've thought that you'd probably be good at. <laughs> we'll we'll save that until the end. So we've talked a bit about how you select these problems. I mean, a few of your chapters, in particular, actually the how to throw a pool party, and also how how you power your home. You you do bring in some of the more serious underlying scientific problems of our time in a subtle way it's like you're not being too heavy-handed with the whole people need to think more about the climate or whatnot but you find a way to shoehorn in moments of i think the end of the pool party one really struck me because you say something like there are all these ways you could bring about what, what you want but there's going to be consequences in the future but hey, we can just not think about those now, right? And I got a real sense that it kind of cut through your normal optimism. So how much do you think it is part of your job to tell people about vital scientific issues such as you know climate change? Well, I mean, I think in particular, it's really, really hard to do any kind of talking about science or working in science without without grappling with like climate change in particular mm. is is like the big problem in some senses, but especially scientific problem and problem of, of communication about science of you know our era there's been this huge disconnect between what the science shows and what the public thinks about it and scientists are all thinking is this our fault is there something we should have explained better should we have tried more and you know and there are so many really talented people who are trying really hard to get the public up to speed on this science and thinking what are we doing wrong are we doing something wrong is it you know what like everyone I think has to doubt themselves and is questioning themselves and is a little anxious about that. Mm -hmm. And I don't have all the answers. There are people who I really admire talking about this, um, like the scientist Catherine Hayhoe. Mm -hmm. uh, I think she's really, really sharp. She has a lot of really good stuff to say on this topic. But I think sometimes it, a little too much is on scientists. Yeah. Expecting them to be able to talk to the, the whole country when the way that politics took over the, the subject and the way that political actors and businesses and stuff started weighing in on it to, to, to try to misinform people. You know, I think that's really at the root of it more than failure of scientists to communicate. Sure. The one thing that I really steer away from is I really don't like um, kind of blaming people for not understanding. Everyone has all these issues that they care about, and, they, and especially any scientist thinks, well, 
the public doesn't understand my field. And it's like, look, the public is busy, okay? There are a lot of different <laughs> fields. And it's really hard to tell what's important. And people are really busy. So I try not to see it as my mission to convince people about something, about, you know, to teach people something in particular about this issue or whatever, because I think that that's a little bit, I don't know, presumptuous. It's almost like worthy to an extent, isn't it? Yeah. But there are sometimes there are things where I'm like, I have a, I have a thing that I could say here that's, that is missing that I could contribute, you know, or something that I could say just to show that I'm worrying about this. Yeah. And when I have those opportunities, I try to take them, you know, when I have a, so a little while ago, I did a comic on Earth's temperature over time, which people will say sometimes like, oh, well, the Earth's climate has changed before. So it's changing again now, but you know, who's, who's to say whether that's good or bad or, you know, whether humans are involved. And that's, it's really, that's very deceptive in kind of a subtle way, because the way that the Earth's climate has changed before, for one thing, has been much slower than it is now. That's the big thing. But also, the changes that we know about in the past were very dramatic. Mm -hmm. So when they say the climate has changed before, like the Earth warmed up by about four and a half degrees over the last, uh, you know, 30,000 years. But 30,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, Boston was under, where I live, was under over a kilometer of ice. Mm -hmm. There are various effects at work there, but generally speaking, like that just shows you four to five degrees is actually quite a big change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so if we're looking at now, you know, potentially going, warming up the earth by another, maybe a degree already, and then another three degrees by the end of the century, mm. that's pretty alarming. So the fact that we know the climate has changed before isn't a reassuring thing. It's a, oh boy, we're gonna, we're gonna cram an entire ice age worth of climate change into a hundred years. And you think that that should be a reason not to worry so much. <laughs> so I did a chart trying to ex get this across because I, I had these data sets that are the ones that people refer to when they're saying the climate has changed before. And I wanted to show how different, I wanted to show the scale and the time scales. And that's a place that's it's really tricky to get across because when scientists want to show, for example, very different time scales, they'll often put things on a logarithmic scale. So you can see detail at the front, you know, at, on one side and detail on the other side, even if they're very different. But here you sort of want the opposite. Mm -hmm. You want to show how rapid the current change is compared to the slow changes in the past. And I worked on that one for it was something like two years. And I talked to experts. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got this right because I know, you know, it's an issue. It's a really contentious issue. And I put up a comic on it where you started scrolling down and you could see the timeline of the temperature moving up and down and the changes that were happening at that time. And at the very end, you finally encounter the current change and get a sense of how quick it is by comparison. And this ended up being, I think, the, it's, you know, hard to measure, but I think it might have been the most viewed thing I've ever put on the internet. Wow. Which was really satisfying. Um, I was really glad. And that made me feel good about the amount of, the amount of work that I put into it. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think the, the biggest thing, you know, when I'll, I'll put in a mention of some interesting topic that I thought was interesting, but I like, I don't like to presume that everyone else is going to think it's as interesting as I do. Like I try to really just have respect for the fact that people don't owe me any of their time or attention, you know? And so I think something is cool, but I'm going to just try to show you why I think it's cool. I'm not going to tell you that you should pay attention to it, you know? Yeah. I really like what you say as well about how I, I, I think there is a lot of pressure on scientists sometimes to, to, you know, it is a massive skill to be able to communicate something extremely complex in a simple and appealing way. And scientists are already extremely busy people as yeah. well. So it's good that people like yourself exist kind of <laughs> bridging that gap to some extent. Do you worry that people consider you an expert? Because by your own admission, although you be passing through experts, you're, you're not on a lot of topics. Do you worry when 
people take what you say as gospel or do you have a confidence now that you've been doing it for a few years that, okay, I can back up what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I try to be pretty thorough with my research and try not to go out on limbs unless I've, you know, I'm pretty sure I can stand, stand by them. But, but certainly plenty of stuff I'm calculating or, or writing about, you know, I, I haven't tried these, uh, most of these things, certainly. <laughs> Anything that involves crashing one astronomical body into another, I'm, I'm going, I'm speculating here. But I think that people get a sense of that. Honestly, the thing that bothers me a little bit more is how readily people will assume that I have a graduate degree or a doctorate or something that I don't have, or casually refer to me as a scientist mm. or a, a physicist or professor or something. Because what bothers me about that is a lot of scientists who I know, especially women, will get the presumption in the other direction. Sure. So that makes me really uncomfortable. And I like, and so I really try to push back when people refer to me as a scientist or physicist, not so much because I care that much about those labels, but because I feel like I'm getting accorded respect that especially women in the field don't get that, you know, rubs me the wrong way. No, absolutely. Being as this is the Pint of Science podcast and we do have people giving talks as part of our festival, trying to sort of make their research accessible to people. If you could boil down everything you've learned from what is it now, 15 years of high-end science communication, what would your advice be to someone who wants to clarify the complex? This is a point that's been made by a couple of, you know, science writers, communicators. I think Emily Grassley, but along with others, you have to appreciate that people don't have the context you have. And that's always a hard thing to remember, to remember what it's like not to know something. Mm -hmm. And that means like vocabulary that's second nature to you. You have to remember people don't all have that. You have to understand that people don't know what you're talking about. They don't have context for, for your research. They don't know the basic things about your field. But at the same time, people are really smart. Regardless of how much or how little people know, everyone can tell when they're being condescended Absolutely. to. And so, so you have to assume that people are kind of really smart and also they are too busy to pay attention to what you're doing. And you have to really make it simple and clear, not so their brains can process it, but so they will see why it's worth their time to, to listen to you. And so I think just having, having respect for people you're listening to and appreciating that they have other things going on and you are only going to get a small slice of their attention, what do you want to do with that? And people have put this in different ways, like assume that people are smarter than you think and know fewer words than you think. That might be, um, that might be Emily Grassley's quote. That's Thing Explainer, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in a nutshell, which was a wonderful book. And I absolutely love what it does for forcing you to think about a concept in a way that is very easy to explain whilst at the same time looking at it with incredible warmth. And I really enjoyed it. That must have been hard to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun. I mean, I had to build a tool that would I would type uh, words, but I had, could only use the thousand most common words. I wondered words. how you did that. You literally so, had something that would reject yes, words. You had yes. a macro that would... Yeah, yeah. And I did it I did it in a really cumbersome way. But um, by the time the book was published, I put up a, a tool on my website that uh, people can visit at xkcd.com slash simple writer. And it uses the same word list and the same rules for grammar and, you know, word construction that I used for the book. And they can try typing things there. And it'll highlight in red, sort of like a spell check, anything that isn't uh, an allowed word. Okay. That makes sense. It's only when you try and break things down that you realize how much you do assume about people's knowledge. Which, Especially when you've like spent you know, five years doing a PhD or something like that. You, you, you are <laughs> yeah. just used to talking, in, especially in biology. Biology is terrible for it. It's all acronyms. Mm -hmm. And you find yourself just being like, oh, yeah, the LSC with the RQ. People are just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, and sometimes people will, you'll say, okay, well, 
yeah, people may not know that word, but it's okay. We'll give them definitions for each word. Uh -huh. You know, it's like, then you end up spending like, the first half of it is just, first let me just define all these words and then you'll be able to follow what I'm saying. And it's like, no one, I don't want to read all those. <laughs> like no one, no one's going to sit down and work through your definitions in order to then follow the point you're making, you know, unless they have to. It's really just not a, not a very, very efficient way to communicate. Sure. You say in the, in, in the introduction to how to actually about how you don't like to make someone feel silly for admitting we don't know something as well, mm -hmm. which I really liked. That rang really true. Not actually from my experience of like talking to non-scientists about science, but actually just scientists talking to each other. Mm -hmm. I've sat in so many lectures where clearly everyone in the audience has already lost the speaker in the first slide, but there's this like universally agreed rule that you must just keep nodding and being like, I really hope that I'm well, going to pick this up again soon. I, and I would always assume that everyone else in the room was following it and it was because I was doodling in my notebooks and looked away for a minute <laughs> that I lost the thread. And it wasn't, you know, it, it took me a long time to sort of realize how often, no, everyone else has also lost this and is trying yeah. to look. And a while ago, my, uh, I had a New Year's resolution that I really liked, which was that when someone used a word that I didn't know, I would ask what it meant mm -hmm. or if I wasn't totally sure. And it's surprising how hard that is because like... I'm an adult. I've read a bunch of books. I, sh I, sh I should be confident. You know, if I don't know a word, well, it somehow slipped through the cracks. And, you know, if someone else is using it and it's a word they know, then maybe they just came across it somewhere that I didn't. And I should, shouldn't be insecure about asking them. You know, there are lots of words I don't know. There are lots of words everyone doesn't know. It's not like I'm worried that they're going to think I don't know enough words. But it's still really hard to admit that you don't know something. Oh, yeah. Because um, maybe that is something you're supposed to know and they're going to look down on you for not. You know, and... But I, when I got over that, it was weird. You know, it was a weird moment when I realized I can just ask, yeah. you know? And it's still sometimes hard, but, I've, but it's helped because I've learned what a lot of words mean. Well, I told myself at the start of this podcast that I would try to, every time something got brought up that I didn't know about, I would be like, sorry, I don't actually know what that means. But mm -hmm. I suspect we'll listen back later and discover I haven't done that. You'll just hear me go quiet <laughs> and be like, hmm. <laughs> I have a bunch of questions I wanted to ask you about XKCD. I've done my best to filter out ones you've probably been asked several hundred thousand times over the years. I love the way that the website you use is still quite, and I hope that you take this in the spirit it's intended, but it's quite sort of old fashioned mm -hmm. in a nice way. It's kept, it's like the simplicity when I discovered it in sort of 2007, it's, it's still largely the same looking website. I think you have given it a few changes over the years, but is there a reason you've not gone down the sort of, for example, you're not all over Twitter, whereas I'm sure mm -hmm. with the amount of fans you have, you could be. Is there a reason you've shied away from the modern way of doing you know, social media and whatnot? I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I've always been a little bit, a little bit uncomfortable with self-promotion in general. And you know, I'm not particularly out there personally about you know, my day-to-day -day stuff. But one thing that influenced me was I grew up only uh, watching public television and you know, reading the you know, books and movies and stuff, and playing computer games. But I sort of w managed to my like my my family was very anti like advertising. So I watched TV with no ads on it, and ads to me always feel kind of a, a aggressive and jarring. And I know that that's just my you know my my personal taste. For a lot of people, it's a big part of what they do. You know, that's reasonable. But that influenced me to think if I can find a way to do this without having ads, I'll do that. And that also means that I don't have to try to track and understand my visitors to my website. Sure. So one thing I am proud of with my website, which occasionally took, you know, took some active effort, is you can install all of the different anti-trackers and anti-blockers that you want in your browser 
but when you visit my website, you'll get like the little green, like, nope, nothing to block here. Uh, and, I've, and I've always been proud of that. That's really nice. Yeah, because I think, so it was sort of the way it, it became a sustainable day job without advertising was through sort of merchandise, wasn't it, originally? Mm-hmm. So you started selling the t-shirts, yeah. which in a way is like a prototype crowdfunding, essentially, but where you actually get, you know, it's like Patreon nowadays for a lot of podcasts, right? It, it offers yeah. some kind of bonus and people are basically paying for the content they love. Yeah, and I've tried offering different things. Like as I started doing more of this infographics and charts, I would sell posters and sometimes prints of comics, whatever people seemed interested in. And it's all licensed under the Creative Commons mm-hmm. non-commercial attribution, isn't it? Yeah. Early on, it seemed like people, like before, before there was as much appreciation of how powerful like going viral was versus um, paid advertising. Like people would ask me like, so where do you advertise your website to get people to visit? And it's like, and I, and I didn't really have words to, to explain like, well, no, but word of mouth is much more effective than that in terms of getting something to spread in a community or something. You know, I would say, oh yeah, you're free to post my comics somewhere. And then other places would be like, don't hot link this, you know, don't post my comics anywhere. And, I, and people took it as like a very, you know, noble, like, oh, it's an open license that lets you post these comics wherever you want as long as you link back. In retrospect, it just seems that seems like a smart decision because mm. you want people to be posting your stuff everywhere. People Absolutely. spend all their time urging yeah. everyone, like, it, please, <laughs> please push, you know, push this on your social media. Like yeah. it, one thing that's really nice is that because I license it that way, people are very vigilant about mm. protecting that. And so some merchandise company from another country will post my comics on a shirt and like, the people who read my website are really nice, but they're very tenacious about this kind of thing. And, they think, and it's, it's, it's really wonderful because they're like, we found someone who's ripping you off here. And I've been writing to everyone at their company and like demanding to know. And I'm like, oh, thank you. No, it's okay. I mean, this happens. You don't need to make them miserable, but like feel like people out there have my back and it's a nice feeling. Oh, they really do. Like this is something I've discovered sort of, you've got Ooh, a really nice community. community. <laughs> Especially on Reddit in particular, I've noticed mm-hmm. you, you have a huge following on, on Reddit. What do you think it was about what you do that really has struck such a chord with people? That's a really hard question to be so introspective, but you've done something within, what was it, two years? You were getting 70 million hits a month or something yeah, on your website? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where those numbers came from. So I'm not, <laughs> They're on Wikipedia. Yeah. It must be true. Um, Citation needed. <laughs> you know, I, re- I don't really know. I think... I just try to talk about the stuff that I think is really interesting. And I felt like it's been a cool experience kind of learning that other people are interested in this stuff too, you know? And, and that, that's what it's felt like with both my comics and my books that I'll often hear from people that like, oh, their little kids read, you know, my books. And I'm like, oh yeah. Oh, I guess little kids also are interested in what happens when the moon crashes into something. And then also like someone will be like, oh yeah, I'm a scientist here. But you know, my parents really liked your book. And and, and that's that's funny. And it's people who maybe maybe wouldn't wouldn't get reached by the webcomic. But I don't know. I just I, I feel like this stuff is the things I'm talking about to me just seem inherently interesting. And I just try to share that as best as I can. What's always struck a chord with me, because my background's in radio journalism, you have to try and tell a story really concisely. You've got like 15 seconds. And what I love is your ability to take a concept and explain that concept in three stick figure diagrams or in like in five seconds. Take something philosophical, something scientific, and by the end of that tiny little comic strip, I think, oh, so that's how you think about this thing. That's how you'd explain this thing to someone else. And I find that... I really don't mean to kiss your ass too much here, but I find that quite aspirational. I find it's a, it's, it's a talent that I'm incredibly jealous of, that ability to take a concept and just explain it point by point, very simply, and come out the other end being educated and entertained. 
I like it. <laughs> we like. We sorry, like man. Sorry, oh, sorry, man. Thank you. We promised ourselves we wouldn't fanboy on this yeah. episode, and now we've oh, got a little, little no, fanboy I mean, segment. Well, that was. I was about to say. So we, we're wrapping up time. As a final question, if that's all right, if someone is coming to this podcast having never experienced XKCD in their life, do you have a personal favorite of your own web comics that you would send them in the direction of? Oh, I don't know. The I don't know whether my favorite one is necessarily the same as the one that I would say, here's the first one to try to get the best idea. Can we you have know. both then? But at the bottom of my website, I have a, a set of panels, which I occasionally rotate, but it's links to like five different comics that that I just think are, here's, here's some good, if you're looking for some to read that I've picked out, you know. I think my favorite personally is Click and Drag, which was a thing that I, I don't know, I come back to a lot about it's about discovering how much bigger the world is than you might expect or than it might look at first. And so it's a single panel that you can click on and drag sideways like Google Maps. And it shows you know, a scene like in silhouettes. And I tried to make it that you can explore. And I tried to make it big enough that your hand would get tired before you reached the edge. <laughs> Um, and I that spent was many hours on click and drag. I actually, I cheated in the way you're not supposed to as well. I like dragged for some time, but I was so worried I would have missed visual jokes or extra bits that I just found the one where you can zoom out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, oh, how yeah. long did that take you to make? It, it, it took a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's been absolutely amazing catching up with you. I have a million more questions, but we have done well to get as many in. Unfortunately, in we don't hour. have a million more minutes. I know. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. It's, it's been, been great an absolute talking pleasure. To you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Brilliant. thanks for having me on. And good luck with the rest of the of the book tour. Oh, thank you. Thank of course, you. yes, you'll be hitting Oxford. Oh, sorry, it's Edinburgh tomorrow, and then it's Oxford on Friday. That's right, isn't it? For for broadcast purposes, tomorrow is probably sometime in the yeah. past. Because, <laughs> I was going to say, if we edit this very, very fast, that will be useful. If I can do this on the bus home, it'll be tomorrow. Tomorrow, when it's Christmas Eve, I will be... <laughs> yeah. Back at your house. Time is a fluid concept. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to our special one-off episode of the Pint of Science podcast with the excellent Randall Munro. We hope you enjoyed that. What do you think, Sam? I have had an absolute blast. What a lovely man, what an interesting man, and fantastic to put an actual face to a stick figure. Yes, indeed, and a voice to many, many animations, which is going to be strange. (laughs) It's completely altered the way I view the comic now, but equally excellent comic still. Now, if you want to read some of Randall's most recent work, How To is, of course, available now in all good bookshops. It's been out since last month. Uh, It's got a beautiful front cover, kind of blue with a delightful aquamarine title. It's genuinely excellent, and everyone should pop out and grab (laughs) themselves a coffee just now. (laughs) Lawrence Llewellyn. (laughs) Bowen over here. (laughs) Just just in case they like to choose books based on, you know, visual cues. Absolutely, yeah. Go straight for those colors that I described. Very feng shui. Indeed. Now, of course, the Pint of Science podcast has been on holiday. How long have we been off, off air now? Ooh, it's been six months. Good An six academic months. break. Exactly. Uh, if you want to go back and catch up on all of Series 1, all 10 hours are available on all the major podcasting platforms, and you can find links to them on pintofscience.co.uk. Uh, as far as Series 2 goes, we've got some exciting plans in the works. We do. We're sort of drifting into what Sam calls pre-production phase now. This basically (laughs) means talking about it in slightly more detail. Yes, absolutely. We've gone from thought bubbles to spider diagrams. That's how close we are. Feel it. 
Uh, we have plans this series. Probably the most exciting update to give fans of the Planet of Science podcast is that we may well be on the lookout sometime soon. Keep an eye on your inbox. Sign up to the Planet of Science mailing list because we might be on the lookout for some guest presenters to join us in bringing this podcast to science enthusiasts across the UK and the world. So if you view yourself as a budding radio presenter, we would love to hear from you. Just keep an eye on your inbox and we'll email you when we're ready to start recruiting. I think that's about everything for today. Anything to add, Sam? No, I'm still a little starstruck. I've had a lovely time. We've all had a lovely time. <laughs> and we hope you've had a lovely time too. We'll see you again for the start of Series 2. Until then, you keep on drinking those pints of science. Bye now. <laughs>